Now, perhaps we're all fairly familiar with this little epic that's in the Bible. It's a brilliant story. Jonah, the grumpy, reluctant prophet who runs away from God, gets caught in a storm, swallowed by a fish, spat up on a beach before finally he does what he's told and he preaches to the city of Nineveh. That's the story, isn't it? It's a good story. I hope you're familiar with it. But we're going to recap some of it and really get into it as we, as we go through this morning. Because I want us to think, what's the story really all about? Jonah is a unique story in the Old Testament. It's very interesting, the Old Testament part of the Bible. This is the only time, think about it, that a prophet of God from Israel is actually sent to a hostile foreign nation outside of Israel to preach the word of God in their capital city. Just doesn't happen, does it? It's the only time. Usually, the the pattern is Israel functions as a nation a bit more like an example. They're an example to everyone around. That's what they should be. The nations around them are supposed to see a, a great example of just how wonderful it would be to live under God's rule and under God's blessing. And don't you want to be like that and come to this great God of Israel? That's how they're supposed to function. But in this little book, God sends his prophet like a missionary to go and take that light to them. That doesn't happen. That happens a lot in the New Testament, but this is kind of a little, it's a little preview in the Old Testament, isn't it? That this is the heart of God. And that's what I think this story is really all about. This story is about the kindness of God to all people. It's about the kindness of God. Kindness, don't be put off put by a word. I know it's a fairly soft word to our ears, isn't it, kindness? But kindness means to act generously towards others, even though they don't deserve it. That's what kindness is. It is to see their need, to, to look and notice a great need someone has, and to say, I will use my resources to, to satisfy that need in others. And God is kind, because right down to God's heart, that's what God does to the unworthy. Jonah understood that God was kind. He knew God was kind. He knew that God is a compassionate and a giving and a generous God, and that even though we don't deserve it, God pursues people and brings people to himself. In fact, he declares it in the last chapter. Let me see if I can get this to work. There we go. In the last chapter, if you, if you can get it in front of you, but I'll pop it off the screen there. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is what Jonah actually says about God. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's the God Jonah knows. That's the God Jonah loves. It's the God that Jonah serves, isn't it? He serves that God because because this God is like this. And this story reveals to us God's great compassion and his love towards, towards all people, not just a special few. People of all kinds matter to God And that, I would suggest to you, is the punch of this story. And if I can't get that across to you this morning, I failed. So I want to try and get that across. The kindness of God is written boldly across every chapter of this little story. That's what I want you to see. And so as we go into chapter 1, I want you to see the kindness of God in sending, in sending a messenger. 
The kindness of God in sending a messenger. Come on. There we go. Okay, here we go. The kindness of God in sending, in actually sending someone. Just a tiny bit of background to the story before we get going. Jonah, in case you're not aware, is an Israelite. He's a member of the nation of Israel. And he lives at a time when Israel is doing very, very well. They're, uh, they're very, very prosperous. And in actual fact, during Jonah's days, there's a king called Jeroboam II. They've actually pushed the borders of Israel out as far as they ever go. They are doing very well. Technology's on the up. Everything, you know, people have got enough food. It's going very well. If you read some of the other prophets at the time, people like Amos and Hosea, uh, Amos, Amos actually has a whole chapter talking about the women of Israel. I'm digressing now. And referring to them as being like, well, if you excuse the expression, like fat cows, sleek and sitting on their couches, luxuriating in all of their wealth. We'll do Amos one day. That'd be, that'd be good, good fun. Okay. <laughs> So they're doing well and they're prosperous. They're doing very well materially, but as the prophets preach against them, the same cannot be said about them spiritually or morally. There's a problem in the nation. They are stubborn and they are proud and they are rebellious. And even though Hosea and Amos, two other prophets at the same time as Jonah, come preaching to Israel, they won't listen. They won't turn. Hosea probably about this, about this time, brought the word of God to them, and this is really important, saying towards the end of his, his little prophecy that because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, because they won't turn to God, God's going to do something. God's going to hand them over to a nation called Assyria. He's going to hand them over to Assyria. Israel will be crushed and subdued and enslaved by the Assyrians. Why is that relevant for our story? Because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria. You got that? Now, against that background, then, the dark clouds of judgment on the horizon with Assyria written over them, okay, for Israel, God calls Jonah and tells Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and preach against Nineveh. Preach against Nineveh. Now you'd think on the surface of that, that sounds like something that would, you know, sound appealing to Jonah. Yeah, he's against Nineveh. Go and tell your enemies, God knows how wicked you are. God is angry with you. Judgment is coming. But here's the problem. Here's the rub. Jonah has a sneaking suspicion because he knows about what God is like. Sneak suspicion that if God is sending him to warn Nineveh, then there's a possibility they might listen. They might turn, they might repent. And then it would be just like God, wouldn't it? To have compassion, to relent, and not to punish them. You see this? You see what's going on here? Why give the Assyrians the heads up? Why give them a warning? They might turn. And we don't want that, do we? That would be especially ironic, actually, wouldn't it? Being as the nation of Israel herself has prophets within her own people and won't listen to them. If Nineveh listened, oh my goodness, that would be awful. Now, 
So in this first chapter, after hearing God's instructions, Jonah promptly disobeys and runs in the opposite direction. We know the story, don't we? Let me pop up a nice little picture. Here we go. So he's running in the opposite direction. And before he gets very, very far, God stops him in his tracks. A violent storm threatens to break up the ship that he gets on. He's got onto a ship to go and try and sail as far away as possible from where God is calling him. A a storm comes, and the sailors, we read in chapter 1, are terrified. The bunch of, of sailors, these salty dogs, as it were, they do the only thing that they can. Uh, they start to chuck all of the, uh, the cargo over, over the ship. They chuck it all over into the sea to see if they can lighten the ship to try and save their lives. And then they all get on their knees. They're powerless, you see, completely powerless and at the mercy of this storm. Creation around them has control over them, and they are terrified. They're at the mercy, in their minds, they're at the mercy of the gods. Maybe one of them, they think, maybe one of them will be able to appease the god that sent this particular storm. These men are pagans. They are worshippers of false gods. They're ignorant people, ignorant of the one true God. They don't know the one true God. But that's about to change. Whilst this is all kicking off, we read, don't we, Jonah, did you notice, is fast asleep below there. I don't understand how he can do that. (laughs) Can you understand? He must have been a very tired man. In all of this turmoil, I mean, you can't really see the picture there. It was a must have been. If it's terrifying seasoned sailors, this is a bad storm. And yet Jonah is taking a nap under deck. He's blissfully unaware of the panic going on above him. That is until the captain bursts in in verse 6 and chews him out. He says, you, you need to get up and start praying to your God, just like we all are. We're going to die. And the situation is getting more and more desperate. And so the crew then come up with a plan because things aren't changing. And they say they're going to figure out whose who's fault this all is and what the cause of it is by casting lots, by basically drawing straws. Surely, if they do that, the gods will be able to reveal to them who's responsible for this storm. And so, verse 7, we read, the lot fell to Jonah. Jonah has, has been outed by God. He's put his finger on Jonah and said, this is the man. And everybody knows it. And now the questions come thick and fast. Jonah's forced, actually Jonah is forced to profess his faith to these sailors because of this. Have a look at what he says in verse 8. Look down at verse 8. There's a barrage of questions. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, that is the word Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah reveals that he worships the one, the only true God, the God who made everything, the creator. These pagan sailors might think that they're worshipping the gods who are in charge of various little bits of the created world. But Jonah declares that his God, the God he serves, made the world. He's the supreme one. And upon hearing this, the sailors are terrified. They know that Jonah is on the run, and they know that he's on the run from the creator God, 
And so they ask him in verse 11, in desperation, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah, what do we have to do? And Jonah knows there's only one thing for it. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Well, probably worried that throwing the prophet of the one creator God into the sea might have the potential to anger the one creator God in whose hands they're now being squeezed. We read in verse 14, they cry out to the Lord asking that he won't hold them accountable for killing Jonah. But there is nothing else they can do, and so they throw Jonah into the sea. Over he goes. And instantly, the storm subsides. And down the prophet plunges. Verse 17 tells us that God provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Okay? It's a good story, isn't it? Now, This bit here is clearly the detail that sticks in most people's minds, isn't it, when they read the story. But let's not get sidetracked by the big fish and lose track of what the story's really all about. One man wrote this, Men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they failed to see the great God. And that's what I want you to see this morning. Can you see the kindness of God here? That can be tricky to see at first in that chapter. It's action-packed. It doesn't sound like anything very kind is going on, does it? But when you start thinking about it, God is very kind here. Look at what this first chapter shows us about God. Here we see a glimpse of the great kindness of God in bringing people to himself, in drawing people to himself. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote to the church in Rome, listen to what he said. How then can they, this is those off off away from God's people, how can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God has made Jonah's reluctant feet very beautiful. See, in in Jonah, we see that even when his people are reluctant to go, God will get his message preached to those who need to hear it. God is determined, and we see that in this chapter, don't we, that the Ninevites will hear his warning and have a chance to turn from their wickedness. That's God's purpose. And so, literally, God moves heaven and earth to get his prophet to them, to take that message to them. But more than that, do you see in this chapter? Even through the sin and the rebellion of his prophet, God draws a bunch of lost pagan sailors to him. God cares about these sailors. They're an incidental bit of the story, really, aren't they? But can you see God's kindness? They start out in verse 5, look at them, crying out in desperation to false gods who do not exist, who cannot help them. They're clutching at nothingness. They're ignorant, they know nothing, they know no better. But they end in verse 16, look at them, fearing the Lord. They're crying out to the God of Israel by name. They now know a name, Yahweh, the God who created They're crying out to him. Not only that, they're sacrificing to him, look in verse 16. They're committing themselves to him. They're making vows to him. 
I mean, it sounds awfully like these men are converted, doesn't it? It looks, and it is, it's like God is actually using Jonah's sin to convert people. That is staggering, isn't it? Men who otherwise would not have heard if he'd just gone, if he'd obeyed, they wouldn't even have heard. (laughs) Only the God of the Bible has the power to weave that kind of sin and rebellion into his plans, and that is unbelievably kind. Well, in chapter 2, as we continue into that, we now see the, the kindness of God in disciplining his children. The kindness of God in disciplining his children. Have a look at what happens in chapter 2. There, there was a man named Francis Thompson. Anyone familiar with Francis Thompson? He wrote a pretty famous poem sometime around the end of the 19th century. Uh, it's a poem that has 128 lines. I read it again this week. I remember learning it at school. It's about a man who's running from God. It's quite Jonah-like, really. And and the poet talks about how he fills his life with all sorts of other things, tries to shut God out, tries to just keep on running and moving away from God and embracing other things. And yet all through that life, the poet keeps saying, he can feel the relentless pursuit of God, giving him no peace in those things that he runs to. The poem is called The Hound of Heaven. You heard of it? Let me read you a bit of it. It's a brilliant poem. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vistaed hopes I sped and shot uh, precipitated. Adown titanic glooms and chasm fears from those strong feet that followed followed after. Do you see? Jonah knows the same feeling of being pursued by the hound of heaven. Hounded. No matter where he goes, he feels the breath almost behind him of God. Well, chapter two is a prayer. We're told from the belly of the fish. We're told in uh, uh, chapter two, verse one, that Jonah prays And the the, the chapter forms a sort of psalm, a psalm to God composed by Jonah. Think about this. I don't suppose any other psalm was written this way. Composed by Jonah as he floats in a kind of fish coffin beneath the waves. There he is. Can you picture him? First in chapter, and it's an interesting poem. In in verses 2 to 6, as you follow it, It's like Jonah's taking us down and down and down and down and down and down into the depths. Sinking into the gloom. He talks like a dead man sinking into the grave. Take a look with me. Verse 2. You look at these expressions. Deep in the realm of the dead. Verse 2. Verse 3. You hurled me into the depths. I've been banished from your sight. Verse 4. Verse 5. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Verse 6, he gets right to the bottom. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. Can you see his mood as he sinks and sinks and sinks? And it is at this deepest point, which in verse 6, Jonah actually refers to as being in the pit, he calls it, that God comes and rescues him. And everything turns around. We're all coming back up again now. So the, the, the chapter sort of goes down and then way back up again. This, too, is God's kindness. Strangled in seaweed and suffocating in fish guts, 
Jonah is experiencing God's love. How strange is that? Jesus described God always, didn't he, as a loving father, as a father, his fatherly love. If a good dad sees their child in the kitchen holding a razor-sharp carving knife and running around in the kitchen, a good dad is not going to ignore that. Not going to say, oh, just let him go his own way. <laughs> that's not a good dad, is it? Does anyone here think that's a good dad? <laughs> no? That's not a good dad, is it? No, he will step in and stop the child. He will take away that knife and probably enforce some discipline. Go sit on the naughty step or something. You've got ten minutes on the naughty step for that. The child might not understand at first. Yeah. Why is dad ruining my fun? Yeah? I was, I, had a, I was like a knight with a sword. I had my great big knife. Dad's, dad's ruining my fun. He's always interfering with what I want to do. Why does dad do that? But this discipline is love, isn't it? It's love. It's the kindest thing to do. Sometimes God's people cannot see it. But we must never despise God's discipline. The book of Hebrews tells us that. God's people, sometimes we don't understand why God allows our sufferings and our hardships. Not all sufferings and hardships are to do with our rebellion and our pulling away with God. They're not all to do with that. But be assured, God is always kind to his children. He disciplines and he rebukes, the Bible says, those he loves. And he always does it for their good. Have you ever felt like you're in the pit? Maybe some of you are feeling now like you're in the pit. You're at that lowest, lowest point. You need to trust that God is kind. He is kind. He loves to rescue. He loves to lift out of the pit. Turn to him. Don't turn away. Turn to him. It is usually when a crisis hits and when finally we are rendered helpless, unable to help ourselves. It's usually at that point that people stop finally and they take time to really think. They think about what's going on in their lives. And as God's people, that's the point at which we should turn to God. God's prophet in chapter 2, Jonah, has reached rock bottom. Jonah's got nothing left to do but rethink his life, to realise his stupidity, to turn from his rebellion. He's trapped. The kindness of God in delivering this rebel brings forth a confession from his lips. You can see it towards the end of the chapter. There's a great summary, really, that, I mean, we used to uh, say it, we used to use, the old version of it used to be, salvation belongs to the Lord. Have a look at what he says. It says here, it's slightly weaker, I think, salvation comes from the Lord. That's, that's what he can't help but saying. So, re- he's saying, rescue, rescue just seems to pour out of God. He's a rescuing God. Salvation belongs to him. Deliverance belongs to God. That's what God's like. He delivers, he rescues, he saves. The creator God, the God of the Bible, Jonah's God, is a rescuer. And he's even a rescuer of disobedient and wicked prophets. That's what he rescues. It's a wonderful confession, isn't it? And with that confession, Jonah is vomited up onto the beach quite gruesome and visceral language that we get in this, isn't it? Vomited. I don't think, is the, is the word vomited used anywhere else in the Old Testament? I'm not sure. It is in the New Testament, isn't it? 
vomited up onto the beach. There he is. His three-day ordeal is over. But his story is not. His story is not. Because in chapter 3, we start to see the kindness of God in relenting from judgment, in turning from his judgment. So as Jonah wipes the fish puke from his face, God speaks again there on the beach, speaks to him. Verse 1. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And this time, off he trudges. Learned his lesson. All the way to Nineveh. I'm going to pick the pace up a little bit. Nineveh is a city of about 120,000 people. That's quite big. By its standards, that's a huge, huge city, standards of the day. It's bigger than Chesterfield. You know that? I did some research. Chesterfield has now grown to about 110,000. So imagine the whole of the Chesterfield area. Huge city, isn't it? And Jonah's situation here would be a little bit like God speaking to you or me and saying, Andy, I would like you to go and take my message to uh, Syria and go to the ISIS training camp, and I would like you to go and tell them that their wickedness has come up against me um, and that I've noticed their wickedness and that my judgment is coming. That would be scary, to say the least, wouldn't it? Jonah is going right into, to mix the metaphors, right into the lion's den, isn't he? It's a scary thing. I don't know what Jonah would have looked like or what he would have smelt like after 72 hours inside a fish, but he certainly seems to get an audience as soon as he gets to Nineveh. They certainly take notice of him as he starts to preach. And the sermon is a very simple sermon, isn't it? Verse 4 of chapter 3, Jonah basically stands up in the streets and he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's crying it out in the streets. 40 days, that's all you've got, and you will be overthrown. I assume there was a bit more to the sermon than that. Okay? There must have been a little bit more to it. But that seems to be the gist of it, really. Which is remarkable, really, because it's probably the most effective sermon preached in the whole Bible, isn't it? 120,000 people <laughs> listened to this. And we're told in verse 5, the Ninevites believed. Man, woman, and child, they believed the warning. They believed the word of the Lord. And so you can see it. They give up their food, is the story. A fast is pronounced. No one's going to eat. From, from men, women, children, cattle, animals, everything. Dress everyone in sackcloth. Stop eating. And the king decrees in verse 8, look, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. No more violence, no more evil. Who knows, he says. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from fierce anger so that we will not perish. Listen, this is genuine repentance. It's a great picture of genuine repentance, isn't it? It is very, very clear, not just from what they say, but from what they do that they are desperate to turn things around in the city. They mean business. They are left pleading for their lives and casting themselves at the mercy of God and just waiting and ticking off the days. 40 days, he said. Let us pray that God will relent. Maybe he will. It's just actually like Jonah in the depths of the sea, isn't it? It's exactly like him. They are convinced now. They're trapped. They're hemmed in. They know that they are wicked. 
They know they deserve nothing from God but judgment. They know they have no hope except that God might, might be kind and relent. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, what they did, the fruit of what they believed, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the, just, the, the judgment, the destruction that he had threatened. Listen, this is as true today, as true about God today, as it was then. It's exactly what God is like today. When God sees people who are broken by their sin, who know they deserve nothing from him except wrath, and yet they cast themselves on his mercy alone, and they ask for his forgiveness, he will always respond with compassion and love. So much so is God so firmly set in that that he sent Jesus to die on the cross at Calvary. That's what it was all about. Like the Ninevites, God is fully aware of our sin. It has come up before him. Judgment is coming and we will be overthrown. But on the cross, Jesus took that punishment. He took the wrath in our place so that God could show compassion to us, love us, and forgive us. That's what the cross was all about. Anyone who is broken by their sin can be right with God, even today, simply by casting themselves at his mercy and putting their trust in Jesus as their saviour. Salvation, rescue, it comes from God, flows from him. Maybe you need to do that today. Well, that would be a great end to the story, wouldn't it? Brilliant end to the story. Let's just finish it at the end of chapter 3. But it doesn't end there. You know, it does strike you. This, this account must have come from Jonah, right? And chapter 4 is not something I would want remembered about me. It's an embarrassing episode for, for, for Jonah. I assume it's there because in the end, we don't know, but Jonah did actually get the message here. But have a look at what happens. I want you to see in, in chapter 4, just as we finish up, the kindness of God in concern for all people. We're right back to the beginning again. God's concern for all people. Verse 1. Verse 1 is so shocking, isn't it? But to Jonah, this seems very wrong. Very wrong. <laughs> It's a shocking end. Jonah is mad at God. Why? Because he's just so darn gracious and compassionate. I mean, that's really what it is, isn't it? Jonah wants God's compassion for himself. He wants God's compassion maybe for his people. He would like some forgiveness for them. But he does not want it for Assyrians, not for Ninevites. He is so angry about the outcome. He says in verse 3, look at it. It would be better for me to die than to live. It's like he's saying to God, God, listen, if that's how you're going to be, pick me or them. Yeah? I don't want to live on, an, on the earth here while you're here forgiving 120,000 people I don't like. Right? It's shocking. We should get the shock of it. And so God teaches him a lesson with a plant and a worm. Here we go. Let's have a look at it. Jonah is sitting in his little shelter, just to the east of the city, we're told, waiting to see if God will finally come to his senses and smite these nasty Ninevites. And the sun is burning down on Jonah. 
And so God provides him with a lovely little plant, we're told. A leafy plant to give shade. And it's almost sick, actually, verse 6. Look at it. When you think about how angry and upset Jonah is generally about everything, about God saving people, it says in verse 6, Jonah was very happy about the plant. Isn't that interesting? Mad at God for saving, happy about the plant. But the following day, and this is the point actually, God sends a worm. Now I guess most of us here will have read the story of the very hungry caterpillar. He's got nothing on this guy. This worm destroys the entire plant. All the shade is gone. And that day it withers up. Well, that's very, very annoying when your shade goes and the sun's burning down on you. But then we read that God adds a really hot wind and a really scorching sun. He's, he's cooking. He's, it's like he's got Jonah under a magnifying, like an ant under a magnifying glass, and he's really heating him up. And predictably, what does Jonah do? He kicks off again. Here he goes. Verse 9, I'm so angry, I wish I was dead, he says. Now God delivers him his lesson verse 10. It's the lesson that ends the book, and therefore it's what really the whole book's all about. Have a look at it with me. But the Lord said, verse 10, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals, question mark, end of book. Good question to leave hanging in the air, isn't it? Jonah, you care more about plants than people. That's actually what it boils down to. More about plants than people. Surely we wouldn't be living in a world that cares more about plants than people, would we? We don't live in that kind of world. I am not like that, God says. You care more about a plant that you had nothing to do with. You didn't make it grow. You didn't even plant it. You had nothing. You didn't water it. You didn't do anything for it. Nothing. It's just a plant. Then you do about the lives of 120,000 men, women, and children, and animals as well. What's, What's up with your priorities? I am not like that, says God. These are people... They are created in my image with dignity, value, and worth. Should I not care about them? All people. Should I not move heaven and earth to save them like I did for you? As Jesus later declared, and it really does sum up the the story, doesn't it? God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Does God care about people? Does God care about this world? Yes. We must never forget that. And so I want to end with a couple of points of application. It's really one point, but I'm going to try it from two angles. See, the usual way we apply this story to ourselves is something like this. Who is it that you think, or that you don't think, deserves God's salvation? Yeah? Who are the people that you are reluctant to take the good news of God's rescue to because of your prejudices, because of you just don't like them? Well, that's a, perhaps a good question to ponder. But I've heard it applied many times that way, and as, as comfortable Western Christianized people, 
I'm sure, I'm, well, I'm not sure it cuts very deep. Uh, and an application like that sort of lets us off the hook a little bit. Because most of us don't live in the midst of a culture of extreme prejudices towards a particular group. Or, or we don't live in the middle of generations of vendettas where people are killing each other left, right and centre. Revenge sort of killings. So we brush off this lesson from Jonah as not particularly relevant to us. Because there's, well, when I sit down, I think, well, there's no one I really don't want to hear the gospel. Yeah? You feel that as well? There's no one I really sit down and think, I hate them so much I don't want to even hear the gospel. That would be slightly odd for us, wouldn't it? So let's take a slightly different angle. What do you value more than people? It's a different way of looking at it. What do you care most about? I'm not just talking ethics here, in your head. But I'm thinking, what's the evidence? (laughs) What's the evidence for the answer that you come up with? The evidence out there that would show your priorities as to what you really care about. What is the evidence in the way you live your life, the way you use your time and your money and your resources? Because God really cares about people, even wicked people, even people like you and me. Do you care about people? Do you care enough to take the risk and warn them that judgment is coming? That takes a lot of care to do that. That's scary. If we scrutinised your week, how much of that energy, money and time do you give to the salvation of people, of wanting to see people saved? Makes you think, doesn't it? God has been tremendously kind to you. Tremendously kind. Will you be kind enough to others to go into the world and to tell them about the salvation that comes from God, rescue that comes from him.